Hey friends, welcome. Thank you for inviting us into your space today. Hey, we've got a lot of things going on at Christ Community, even throughout the summer here. Oh yeah. So you can go onto our website, go to our events or coming up page. Yeah. You'll see all the upcoming events, um, ways that you can get connected, connect with groups. Um, so be sure to check that out. Also like and subscribe so that when we have more content coming out, it shows up in your feed. Enjoy the message. Welcome to all of you who are here um, at this service and to all of you who happen to be watching this message online. So glad that you are here. So a couple of months ago, Raylene and I took our son Josh to Disneyland. Uh, it was sort of a late graduation present. It was so much fun. I mean, Josh, he loves everything Star Wars. Uh, so we knew he would love going to Galaxy's Edge, and he did. He totally got into it, even trying to use the force um, on the stormtroopers that walked by. You can see uh, from that photo there. Um, and we also did some of the rides that I remember from years ago, Space Mountain and Big Thunder Railroad. And I hadn't ridden those in a really long time. And so as we were riding those, I was just reminded of how there is this anticipation that builds as you slowly head up the incline, click, 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 right? Knowing that in just a few moments, when you crest the top of that hill, watch out, right? Buckle up, hey, hold on to your hat. You know, it's going to be sheer acceleration for the rest of the ride. I feel like that analogy uh, describes where we're at in the book of, of 1 Corinthians. Uh, for the past two months, we've been walking through chapters one to four, where Paul is addressing some unhealthy things going on in the church in terms of division and immaturity. And it's kind of been a steady ride, click, click, click. But in chapter five, we crest the hill, okay? Uh, we, we get to the top of the hill, and I just want to say buckle up, because things are going to get really interesting and maybe even a little uncomfortable, and that's okay. I mean, part of the reason we chose this book in the Bible to study in this season was because we knew it was going to be challenging for all of us. I mean, if, if, if we're never challenged or offended by the Bible, I'm not sure we're truly engaging it. Okay, so what's the topic that Paul addresses in chapter 5? Sexual immorality. There was some heavy-duty sexual immorality happening in the church, and no one in the church seemed to care. And so Paul directly addresses this question. How is a church supposed to respond when there is someone in the church who is living in unrepentant sin? Now, that's a really difficult and challenging question, not only for the believers in Corinth, but also for us as well in the midst of the culture that we live in and that they were living in. Now, now before we start walking through this passage, I want to be really clear right up front. I want to be really clear about a couple of things. First of all, as we're going to see in a moment, Paul is not talking about a person who struggles with sin. He's not talking about a person who has areas of sin that they are struggling with. That's all of us, right? None of us are perfect. What Paul is addressing is a situation in which someone who is a part of the church is living in blatant, willful sin and who has no interest in repenting or stopping the behavior. Okay, that's the first clarifying statement. The second clarifying statement I need to make up front is that Paul is not talking about how the church should respond to people outside the church who are committing sin. 
This passage is not about the church being the moral police for, for our society. In fact, look at the end of this passage. We're going to jump to the end first. Look at this, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy, the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. See, notice Paul's concern here is not about the world out there and how people out there are behaving and what we need to do to address the sin that is out there. No, no, no. That is not his concern in this passage. Paul's concern is about the church the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, this dwelling place of God on earth. How are we to respond when unrepentant sin infiltrates the body of Christ? See, that's the question Paul is addressing. And it's why his words here are so intense and forceful. Paul is a mama bear when it comes to the church. He, I mean, he, he has given his life to this thing called the church. He loves the church. He's, he's given his life to establishing and helping the church thrive and grow. And now here is the situation that's threatening the health of this church. And Paul is not just going to idly stand by. He's going to address it forcefully. He's going to address it directly. He's not going to tap dance around it. This is serious because it has to do with the church, the bride of Christ. Okay, so let's jump down. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, so Paul has received word that in this church in Corinth, there is a man who is a part of the church who's having sex with his father's wife. We don't know any more details than that. Is it his stepmom? Is his dad still alive? We don't know. What we do know is that this incestuous relationship is a sin that even the very permissive Greco-Roman culture in Corinth would raise eyebrows over. Paul says even pagans don't tolerate this kind of behavior. So this is a very egregious very shocking, sexually immoral relationship that is happening with someone in the church. Now, the woman in this passage is not mentioned, and the reason most likely is because she was not a part of the church. Paul doesn't address the woman because she was not a part of the church. She's not a part of the church. Only the man is a part of the church, which is why Paul is only addressing the man's behavior and how the church should deal with that. Okay, now there are two specific issues that Paul addresses here that speak directly to us in terms of our response to unrepentant sin within the church body. The first has to do with our attitude toward sin. Our attitude towards sin. This is where Paul begins in this passage, and it's so important that he, he does begin here. Begin, everything else Paul has to say in this passage that we're going to look at, 
Everything else Paul has to say will make no sense to us. In fact, everything else Paul has to say will be highly offensive to us if we don't honestly evaluate our own attitude towards sin. Paul has just pointed out in verse 1 the situation of sexual immorality going on in the church that everyone in the church knows about. This is not a secret. Everyone knows about it. So how is the church responding to this? Verse 2, and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? See, here's this person in the church fellowship who is engaging in this egregious, blatant form of sexual immorality. And Paul says that the church's attitude towards this situation is one of pride. You're proud about this. Now we see at the end of chapter four that the pride he is addressing, he brings it up at the end of chapter four, the pride relates to certain people in the church who are being dismissive of Paul's teaching in a very blatant, obvious way. See, Paul's concern is that the church is not at all bothered by this sinful behavior. They don't seem to care. They don't seem to care. Which in Paul's mind exposed a very serious problem. When when our sin or the sin of others has no heart impact upon us, that is not good. It reveals a heart that has become hardened, that has lost spiritual sensitivity, which is a big deal. Paul says in verse 2, shouldn't you have gone into mourning? In other words, shouldn't your hearts have been grieved by this sin? See, sin in any form grieves the heart of God because of the damage that it causes God commands us to avoid sin, not because of some power trip that he's on. No, he commands us to avoid sin because sin damages lives and it damages relationships. It undermines wholeness and goodness and truth. It poisons the soil of our lives. It uses people. It damages relationships. It destroys families. It it leads to bondage. But the challenge is, of course, we live in a society that often celebrates sin, that celebrates personal freedom to do whatever we want to do. And that attitude so easily creeps into our hearts because it fills the movies that we watch and the videos we watch and the television shows we watch and all of that. I mean, have you ever had this happen where you start to watch a show, someone recommends it or whatever, Netflix, you know, you start to watch a show. And in the first episode, you notice that in the show, that it regularly uses Jesus' name in vain and along with the F-bomb, you know, in the same sentence, or where nudity is normal, or where porn use is sort of joked about, or where sexual immorality is celebrated. And initially, it sort of bothers you, but you just keep watching. And then after several episodes, it doesn't bother you anymore. That's not a good thing. The fact that it doesn't bother us anymore is not a mark of maturity. God's attitude towards that hasn't changed at all. Our attitude has. See, rather than this grieving, rather than this grieving our hearts are making us uncomfortable, 
It doesn't bother us anymore. So imagine the impact of that over time. You know, it's the old frog in the kettle, uh, you know, analogy from years ago. You you take a a frog and you drop it in hot water, boiling water, and it will immediately jump out. It's too hot. But if you put a frog in cold water and then you gradually turn up the temperature, it will sit there and be boiled to death. It won't move because its skin gradually acclimates to the increasing temperature. It doesn't notice that it's being boiled alive. See, the question is, where is our soul acclimating to the temperature of our culture as it relates to sin? Where does our heart feel nothing over something that causes so much relational heartache and so grieves the heart of God? When we don't grieve something that grieves the heart of God, it reveals a very serious problem in our hearts, a hardening of our spiritual arteries. I will never forget, never forget an experience I had in seminary in an Old Testament class. We had just arrived, and as usual, our professor, Dr. Murray Harris, was beginning the class with prayer. And what was significant about that particular day was that the night before, the news had broken regarding a very, very well-known TV evangelist who had been caught in sexual immorality. And it was national news because this guy was a well-known figure and all that. Um, and so there was, there was a lot of talk, a lot of jokes, a lot of criticism among us students there and among Christians about this person and what had happened. So there we were sitting in class as Dr. Harris began to pray. And as he started to pray, he began to mention in his prayer this situation. And then there was this long, awkward silence. I'm sitting there wondering what's going on. And I I look up and he's weeping. He's weeping. He was grieving the damage this sin had done to the body of Christ and to his Savior. While the rest of us were pontificating and judging and laughing, Dr. Harris was weeping. Which response more accurately reflected the heart of God? See, what is our attitude toward our own sin or the sin of others, believers in Christ that we know about? Does it grieve us because it grieves the heart of God? Or do we just treat it as no big deal? Okay, which leads to the second critical response to sin that Paul is calling this church to. And this has to do with our action toward sin. Once we see our sin the way God does, once our hearts are grieved by the damage and the destruction that sin causes, the natural response then is to take action, right? Um, And that's what Paul describes here, verse two. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? See, what Paul is describing here is something that is often referred to as church discipline. So church discipline involves removing someone from the church if this person is willfully living in unrepentant, sinful behavior. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds really harsh. 
But before we make too quick a judgment, let's look at what Paul has to say about this, okay? Before we react to this, let's look at what he's actually saying. Because in this, Paul, gives, Paul actually gives two compelling reasons why this particular course of action is actually a loving thing to do. All right, first reason, to spiritually impact the person who is engaged in willful, sinful behavior. See, the heart of church discipline is never punishment or condemnation. No, the heart of church discipline is love. This is tough love. Any parent here knows exactly how this works. We discipline our children for their good. So letting them get away with harmful behavior without experiencing any negative consequences of that is not loving. It isn't. We don't want to be, you know, oh, I want to be their best friend. No, no, that is not loving. That's actually the opposite. That causes harm to our children because it will negatively impact their ability to keep a job, to have boundaries, have healthy relationships, et cetera. See, none of, us is, none of us as parents enjoy disciplining our children. We don't, none of us do. But if we don't discipline them, the consequences are huge in terms of their personal development and character and all of those things, huge consequences. Same thing applies in the church. What Paul is describing is painful, but not necessarily harmful. It has a loving purpose and intent. Verse three, for my part, even though, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul says to them, look, when you're gathered together for worship and the power of the Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan. Now, wow, I mean, that sounds really harsh. What is Paul talking about? What he's talking about is the fact that when this person is expelled from the fellowship of that church, they are removed from the spiritual protection that, that, that a church provides in terms of prayer and community and encouragement and equipping and all of that, which makes them an easy target for Satan to work in their lives in a greater way than he already has been. Okay, so how could this idea of turning someone over to Satan be helpful? Well, think about this. Follow me here. In Luke 15, parable of the prodigal son, who squandered the father's inheritance in wild living. If you remember that story from Luke 15, what was it that caused the prodigal son to come to his senses? Do you remember? It was him, it wasn't a sermon. <laughs> It was him experiencing the consequences of his actions and finally deciding feeding pigs is not really what I want to be doing. It's not where I want to be. I want to be home with my father. See, sometimes we have to experience the pig slop, right? We, we, sometimes we have to experience the pain and the consequences of our sinful choices to make us want to come back to the father. So the heart of church discipline is this idea that by removing someone from the fellowship of the church, we are hoping to hasten, hoping to hasten that process so that they hit rock bottom sooner. 
Paul, as a loving spiritual parent, is urging the people in that church to make this person experience some negative consequences for their behavior with the hope that this person will eventually turn back to Jesus and experience the fullness of his salvation. Okay, that's one compelling reason. It's for the person's benefit, spiritual benefit. Second compelling reason Paul gives for removing removing this person from the church is to remove the permeating influence of this sin in the body. Paul is not just concerned about the person who's engaging in this sinful behavior. He's also concerned about how this unaddressed sin is going to impact the church. Verse six, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. See, Paul is using an illustration that highlights how sin works. Sin is like yeast in dough. Small amount impacts the whole loaf. So Paul says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened um, batch. And then look at what he says next. As you really are. See, Paul is saying, get rid of this sin because that's not who you are. You are not simply sinners saved by grace. It's a really low bar. We talked about this several weeks ago. Oh, yeah, everyone sins. We're all just sinners saved by grace. No, no. You are beloved children of God who are called to be holy. You're called to be whole. We talked about that several weeks ago. We, we have been saved for the purpose of wholeness, not simply to get to heaven. We have been saved for the purpose of wholeness. Verse seven, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, sin spreads malice and wickedness, which is why it needs to be directly dealt with. I mean, we all, look, we all know how this works. I mean, one negative person in a work environment infects the entire team, right? We all know how this works. One negative person, one, you know, one deceptive person, whatever, it impacts the whole team. That's how sin works. Its influence spreads. So in a case like this, with a person unashamedly living in blatant sin that everyone knows about, Paul says, you've got to remove this influence or it will begin to permeate and poison other relationships and people in the church. Okay, so those are the principles Paul gives. Question is, what do we do with this? <laughs> I mean, this is pretty radical stuff. We as a church are not really used to kicking people out of the church because of persistent sin in any area. So what does this mean for us as a church? Well, let me offer a few kind of pastoral and practical words on this. First and foremost, we desperately need to see sin the way God does, and we need to start with our own sin. We need to remove from our lives any influences that are sowing into our minds and hearts the idea that sin is not that big of a deal, that it's something to laugh off, it's something to ignore, it's something to dismiss, to tolerate, because everyone's doing it. We need to see any and all sin for what it is, something that destroys the life of God in us and in others, whether it's the sin of lust or sexual immorality or greed. 
or lying to people or whatever. Sin in any form destroys and damages hearts and our relationships. We need to see it that way. We need the Holy Spirit to help us see any areas of our lives where our souls are just kind of acclimating to the temperature of our culture. And we're no longer grieving or grieved by things that grieve the heart of God. So this is where this message has to begin. It just begins with each one of us looking at our own sin and grieving the damage that sin causes, starting with us. Secondly, we need to be willing to speak the truth to one another. Um, when, When Jesus addresses this issue of church discipline in Matthew 18, this is where it begins. Check this out. This is really a foundational passage for this whole area. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. See, notice Jesus gives us a process to follow. It starts with a one-on-one conversation. We go to the person who is living in willful, repentant sin, and we gently confront them. Out of a heart of love, we gently confront them. If that doesn't work, there's a process Jesus gives us to follow. We bring two or three trusted people along, and if that doesn't work, we take it to the church leadership. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, we don't know the whole story in terms of what other steps had already been taken. So we need to be careful. We don't try to apply 1 Corinthians chapter 5 without the process that Jesus gives us. And in the process Jesus gives us, each one of us has a part in the process. Did you know that? Each one of us has a part in the process. Go one-on-one first. That involves all of us. So given the destructiveness of sin, we need to be willing to have a gentle but truthful conversation with a fellow believer who is willfully living in unrepentant sin. It is so much easier to just ignore those, these things, right? To dismiss them under the guise of, well, we're all sinners, But again, what we forget about is the damage that that sin is doing, the damage that it does. I mean, if someone, you know, a friend or whatever is walking in the traffic and they don't see a truck that is headed their direction, is it loving to not do or say anything? Of course not. I mean, even though our society thinks sin is not that big of a deal, as followers of Jesus, we know better. We know better. Sin is a huge deal in that it wreaks brokenness and pain, which is why we long to be holy. We long to be whole. And we long for our brothers and sisters in Christ to be whole as well. So we got to be willing to have these conversations one-on-one. Third pastoral comment I would make, if we go through this loving process Jesus describes, and someone is still not willing to repent, I think we as a church need to seriously look at what Paul's describing. Removing this person from our fellowship for the purpose of them coming back to the Lord. Now, I don't know exactly what this would look like, especially in a church the size of ours, but I don't think we can just ignore the teaching of Jesus and Paul on this subject. 
again, this is not, please, this is not about confronting people regarding sins they're struggling with and we all become police around here and just kind of looking through, you know, you know, we're not talking about that at all. That's not what this is about. But this is about gently and lovingly confronting a fellow follower of Jesus who is willfully and continually choosing to engage in destructive, sinful behavior without any remorse or repentance. In that case, Paul says, the bride of Christ is too important to simply let this go without it being dealt with. Now look, I realize every situation is unique and how this happens will depend upon all sorts of different factors. I mean, we we need the Holy Spirit's help to navigate these things with wisdom and sincerity and love and truth so that the body of Christ is protected and honored. Now, I know this is really hard. I know this is difficult stuff, but I want to draw your attention to something we see in the next letter that Paul sends to the same church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about his previous letter, this letter to them. And he seems to be referring to the situation and this person who was under discipline. But this is like a, a, several months later. Notice what he says. The punishment, this is for 2 Corinthians 2. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. See, this is the other side of that situation. The man living in rebellion has now experienced the consequence of his, of his sin by the church doing church discipline. He's experienced the consequences of his sin, and he's being welcomed back into the fellowship. See, that's the heart of this whole area of church discipline. It's about loving someone enough to ultimately want what is best for them, even if it means exercising tough love to get there. Thankfully, the action Paul is describing, it's really a last resort. (laughs) It's what happens if all the other loving steps have been tried and rejected, lots of conversation, all that. If all that has been rejected, this is a last resort. So have I seen this work, church discipline work, where a person comes to their senses after they're removed from a fellowship and they come to their senses? I have seen it work. Have I seen this go the other way, where the person just leaves ticked off and starts going to a church across town? Yep, I've seen that happen as well. And that's the unique nature of the culture we live in compared to Corinth. There wasn't another church across town in Corinth. This was the church. So that's a little bit different situation. So the removal of this person in Corinth from the fellowship, that became the wake-up call he needed to turn back to Jesus. Now, even though our cultural context is significantly different than the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago, God's heart is the same. God's heart is the same. This passage reveals God's heart for his church to take sin seriously and to together choose to pursue both love and holiness in our own lives and in the lives of everyone in this church family? Are we willing in the power of the Holy Spirit to live this out as a church? Let's let's, uh, respond to this. Why don't we stand? If you're able to stand, let's stand. And I'm gonna, in just a moment, just gonna ask the Holy Spirit to come. And this is our opportunity. Um, We've heard a message. Now it's our opportunity to quiet our hearts and to open our hearts 
to the presence of God, to encounter him. And so this prayer, this historically rooted prayer, we're going to pray in a moment, come Holy Spirit, is, is each one of us opening our hearts to whatever God would want to do or say to us specifically, to each one of us here. Okay, so let's quiet our hearts. Let's open our hearts to him, and I'm going to pray here. Holy Spirit, come. We open our hearts to you. Come, Holy Spirit. We wait on you. God, we wait on you. We open our hearts. We say yes to whatever you're saying. So as we're waiting on the Lord, I have a couple of um, just uh, a sense of specific kind of invitations. I feel like the Lord um, is, is stirring. One, I just had this picture of like a Band-Aid being ripped off. Um, and I, I feel like for some of you, that's maybe what this feels, that, that there's something that you know it's going to be painful initially as hair is getting pulled off or whatever. But then it's good because <laughs> the wound can be addressed. So if that's where you're at, I, I want to just um, pray, Holy Spirit, come, and I pray for the courage to pull the Band-Aid off. Lord, all of us know that feeling of, ah, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. But we know we, we have to do that in order for the wound to be addressed. And so I just want to pray for that. If there's someone here that, or someone watching, they need, they know what they need to do. Give them courage to pull that Band-Aid off. There's a second invitation that I felt all week, really, and especially the last day as I was just praying over this message. I, th I feel like I just want to ask this for all of us, including me. Are there places in our hearts, in your heart or my heart, where we are allowing our soul to acclimate to things that grieve the heart of God? where we're tolerating something in our own life that we know grieves God's heart. So Holy Spirit, I, I, I want to invite us to kind of sit with this question. 
as we're responding to sit with this question. And would you open our eyes and our hearts to see if there is any area where we have just been acclimating and accepting things that grieve your heart. Maybe they used to grieve our heart and they don't anymore. We pray, Lord, you would break up the unplowed ground in our hearts, places where our hearts have become hardened. You would break up that ground so that seed can be planted from you. Seeds of righteousness and holiness can be planted. So God, break up that ground in us as we wait on you. And there's one other invitation. I just, just to ask the Lord, I'm just wondering if God is wanting to put on our hearts a conversation that we need to have with someone, a, a brother or sister in Christ that is headed down a destructive path. And so that's another question we can just hold before the Lord. So we want to enter into a time where we are responding to whatever the Holy Spirit is laying on our heart, any of those three things I mentioned or something else. And you can, at your seat, encourage you as the worship starts. So just let the Holy Spirit deal with you or move in you. And I also want to invite you to, there's a ministry space available up front here where if you're feeling like the Lord is doing something in you and and you don't want to just kind of process that on your own or, or receive on your own. We want to invite you just to come forward. We have a prayer team available. I'm also available. And we're just going to come alongside whatever God's doing. We're not going to stop and ask you what's going on. We're just going to come alongside and place a hand on your shoulder and just bless what God's doing. And then we'll just share if, if we kind of have a word or anything that's coming to our hearts. We'd love to just share that and pray that, um, pray into that. So that's the opportunity. If you come up front here, it's you just stand, receive from the Lord, and, and it's a way to let us partner with something maybe God's stirring in you. So Holy Spirit, continue to move in us. We want to respond to you. We open our hearts to all that you want to do in us. Holy Spirit, come. So coming out of this message, wherever you are, whatever things are going on through your mind and your heart, we would love to connect with you. So please reach out if you have any questions, anything you'd like to talk to a pastor about, anything you need prayer for, we're here for you. So please go on our website. There's a chat box or you can submit a message here on YouTube or anywhere. We're going to connect with you and pray for you. So just know that we're here for you and you are part of this church family. So thank you for uh, this time together and have a blessed day.